And the scripture says this. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such person, persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy but as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, please tune our hearts to you. Please fill us with the spirit, Lord that we may worship you in the way that we engage with your word, that we may learn from you and be changed by you. Father, please be with us. And Lord, please anoint the preaching of your word today. Lord, may you be glorified in every aspect. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So we are nearing the end of our series, really our two-part series on um, reinforcements. As Paul is, is reinforcing the faith and the, the growth of this church that he had planted not long before this. Remember, it was a young church. But it doesn't take a church long for things to start happening. It doesn't take a people long before issues come up, before our, our brokenness is on display, even as we are being healed, healed by the Savior, even as we are coming together as a church. And, and this was the case uh, of what Paul was dealing with here in this church. Uh, he was, he's going to conclude this letter really with uh, an opportunity and a word on how we can watch out for each other. How we deal with each other, how we love each other through challenges and, um, and really how to address 
I will say shortcomings, but essentially things that we're dealing with that we're, we're starting to perhaps deviate a bit. We're, we've misunderstood something. And so, um, you know, we talk a lot about family. I talked about it this morning, how the church is a family. And, and that's what we ought to be. And in a family, you care for each other. In a family, you watch out for each other. If you've got a brother or a sister that is starting to do something that you can foresee will be harmful or at the very least potentially harmful, you love them enough to deal with that. And we always talk here about being a healthy church. We want to be a healthy church. We want to be a healthy church family. And so even as we continue to grow and even as God continues to make us who he wants us to be, we have to look at how we deal with each other in the good times and in the bad times, in the easy times and in the times that we're struggling. And so Paul demonstrates his love for this church by addressing things, by bringing it up, by by facing it head on and doing it in a loving way and instructing the church in how to do it in a loving way as well. Now the specific issue that he's dealing with here are people who refuse to work for whatever reason. And there there are various reasons on why they may not do that from everything from people thought that Jesus coming was imminent and so they didn't want to they weren't going to waste time doing that. They're, they're just going to wait for Jesus and have other people who were working do that. I don't know how they figured that out or how they worked that out, so it's a little odd. Um, some people believe that it's because of the culture of patronage, where you might have teachers or philosophers who would have patrons in the city, and Rome, uh, Thessalonica was apparently one that had a lot of patronage. And so you had these people who would support people who sat around and thought and philosophized and did different things. And so there could be something related to that, uh, even within the church. Whatever it is, Paul has an issue with this church and, uh, and the, the ongoing practice and problem of them not following the authoritative word to work to earn their way, to be productive. They're not using their time to be productive, to earn a living, or to be involved in kingdom living. Instead, he says they've become busybodies. They've gotten involved in all sorts of things, which of course is the, I mean, that's the way it tends to work among all of us. Now, I grew up in the 70s. My childhood was in the 70s. And so the the world was different. Those of you who were around in the 70s, you understand the world was different. And so more than anything else, you had the, the men and the, who would go to work nine to five and you had the ladies who would stay uh, and take care of the house and manage the household. Now, I grew up in that. So when I was a child, I grew up not in, in the work part, but in the home part. And so we had telephones on the walls. Do you remember telephones on the walls? Right. You didn't take them anywhere unless they were on a long cord. We had a we had a telephone on the wall in the kitchen. And the, here's the great thing about those telephones. It was our way of doing like mobile phones. It would be a phone on a hook and it had a cord that started here. And this is a windy cord. So it started here and it would go to the floor and it would come back. And so when you walked up on it, you had this long curly cord. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, well, yeah that's right. A lot of hands. Which means that when you got on that phone... Boy, you could go everywhere. I mean, you'd be like going into the next room, you know, if you had something to do here. And you got really good at this. I don't know how my mom ever looked straight ever. Because every time I ever saw her, she was like this. And she'd be working, she'd be doing something, she'd clean up, and she would be just a-talking. 
Now, look at me. I'm going to put it on the phone. I want to hang up my phone. It's kind of weird. It's a strange thing. I don't know why. But anyway, I like to finish things, I suppose. Nevertheless, there's all sorts of stuff you can hear when that phone is under the, ch- the chin, right? And so a lot of things happen. A lot of things were said. All the, all the news would come through the grapevine, right? And it would come and go, and everybody would be talking about everything. Now, I don't want to come down too hard on the ladies because the men were really just as bad. It was just different because most of the time the men would come home at 5 o'clock, they'd have dinner, and what happened over dinner? You heard all the stuff that was talked about on the phone. So the next day the men would go to work. Well, men have coffee breaks. And they're still saying the same stuff. There's this, there's this it's what we're prone to. When we hear something, we like to talk about it, even if we don't know if it's completely true. And it can cause all sorts of problems. Now, our world today, we're no different than that. It's just, then that is just easier because we all have cell phones and that's where it all happens, whether it's Twitter or X or whatever they're calling it this week, Facebook, whatever. You hear so many things and there's so many opportunities to get involved in busybodiness, to hear all of the conspiracy theories or all of the, the, the this person did this and said this and, and it may not be verified, but it starts to be, this, and there's so much disinformation that goes on. It's a very real thing. And so Paul is dealing with that very thing in the sense that the principle is you don't need to be involved in that. You need to be involved in doing what you're called to do in making sure that you are living your life in a way that honors Jesus. That means on social media, off social media, on the phone, off the phone, in person or not. And Paul's dealing with that very, very issue. Now, When it comes to the idea of working, which is what he dealt with in this specific issue, we really dealt with that when we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we we looked into this passage that we were reading today as well to kind of unpack that. So today, I want to look at this a little bit differently. I want to look at this more from a, a principle position. And I think that I'm warranted in doing that because, because even though Paul had this very specific usage of the word that we see in there that is idle. The Greek word actually has a, a much broader usage, and quite often it is used differently. So, so where it can be considered lazy, the actual word is defined as disorderly or irresponsible, or we could even say out of step. So if someone is idle, they could just be walking, living in a disorderly way. They could be walking in an irresponsible way, generally, or they're out of step. And so in the idea of out out of step, essentially they're out of step with whatever is authoritative, with whatever is the norm, whatever is what is acceptable. And so for disciples, both then in that church and now, the authority is the same, even though we have it in a different format. So for for the disciples in the church in Thessalonica, the authority was the, was the apostle and the apostles and the words of the apostles. And, and what were the words of the apostles? The words of the apostles were really the words of the teachings of Christ. And so what we have today is the words and the authority of Christ through the authority of the apostles that gave us the authority through the written word. And so we have the word of God that serves as the authority of the church. Paul said in 2 Timothy three sixteen, all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. So it comes from God. 
It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, so that the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So, not to take the word of God seriously means that we are going to be incomplete and ill-equipped disciples. It means that we are out of step with what Christ called us to and had in mind for his disciples. And so, sometimes that can happen. Sometimes that can happen in the church. Sometimes that can happen with any of us. If there's something that we want to do more than we want to follow Jesus, and it's not a very big deviation, sometimes we might, we might kind of move in that direction. We kind, of, we kind of start to trail in a different place, in a different direction, and we have, to, we have to maintain the unity of our fellowship around the authority of the God-breathed word. And so Paul teaches us how to main, maintain this within the church so that the church is healthy. And, and again, that's what we want. That's what we need to be. We see examples of enough churches that have become unhealthy. Perhaps they were healthy at one time, but they begin to just little by little, by degree after degree, begin to deviate from the truth of the word of God to, in order to accommodate the cultural pressures. And before long, with each little tick over time, when you look up, you see that church is now heading in that direction, whereas they were in this direction, in line with the word of God. And now with each little degree, they have moved in a completely different direction. Don't think that cannot happen with us. We have to be absolutely determined and committed to the word of God once delivered to the saints. And so that means that we have to sometimes take action in order to make sure that, to correct steps or to make sure that steps aren't taken. We're not a cult. We're not forcing anybody to, to do anything. But if someone says they are a, a disciple of Jesus, then our lives should back that up. And there should be a commitment on all of our parts to do that, to make sure that we are keeping up with one another, that we are loving one another, which leads us to a little bit of a side point here but it's a point that is very very important there are a lot of churches I'm not beating up on other churches I'm just saying that this is a reality you can go to churches where they don't have any sort of a membership you just go up you show up you come you're committed as you want to be you come and go and it's all fine and as long as you walk through the door you're considered a member a part it's not really a member because there's no such thing but then there are other churches that have membership, but it doesn't mean anything. There's no real level of commitment. There's no real level of, of a unity around a certain uh, set of standards. But that's where it demonstrates the importance of what we call here covenant membership. It's really, really important. I mean, you can come here or you can come to any church and you can be a part you can take part. You can come and be a part of the service. You can come to some of our, our get-togethers. You can come to our social lunch, whatever, our fellowship that we have every so often. But why this is so very, very important is because if we are not specifically and intentionally connected to a body of believers, there's no sense of that authority or accountability. Right? So if you just come... And we really don't have any kind of, uh, under, we have no real connection to you except the fact that you're coming. Then if you start to drift, there's really not much we can do. There's not way, no way that we can say, hey, 
you really need to be held to this standard. Sure, we can say as a, as a, as a believer in Christ, you can, but, but really there's no connection. There's no accountability. There's no way that we can speak into your life with that authority of the oversight of the church in the same way that Paul was speaking with authority into the life of the, the church in Thessalonica that he had founded. And so I really want to encourage you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, or maybe you're watching online and, and you're not really connected anywhere, connect. Make that commitment so that there can be that mutual accountability, that we're heading in the same direction, the same way, so that we can love each other and make sure that we're not drifting off into some weird direction where if you get tired, you just kind of go, oh, you know what, I don't want to, so-and-so said that I need, the word says this, I don't really care, and you wander off. It's a dangerous place to be. Sure, you have that freedom to do so, but it's a dangerous place to be. And for, for those who are covenant members here, the call is to make sure we're taking our calling for each other very seriously, that we're loving each other. And so Paul is going to help us to see how we do that. Because when we're looking at this and we're talking about the kind of thing that Paul's dealing with, we're not really talking about sins of commission, right? Like we're not talking about sexual immorality or anything like that. There was no sense of that going on the way it was in, say, the church of, first, of, of Corinth where he dealt with that. Where he's talking about here is less sins of commission and more sins of omission, right? It's things they weren't necessarily doing that they probably should have been. And the the danger with that is it's less obvious. And we tend to give it more of a pass. So this might be somebody who's just a a little bit out of step with the word. They're not really engaged. Maybe they're not, uh, maybe there's some aspect of the scripture that, that they're, they're not living according to. And it's sometimes hard to see. It's sometimes hard to, it's hard to pinpoint. And sometimes we feel very, very awkward in dealing with that because it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal because it's in the kind of the realm of negligence, right? There's nobody who's running off, chasing after somebody that they shouldn't be chasing after. It's just, there's negligence. They're, they're, these, in this case, they're just... They're not doing what they're called to do in the realm of work, right? So that's both harder to see and it's harder to, to say something or, or, or to deal with. And yet, it's very important to Paul because it still has an effect. And if it doesn't have an effect now, it eventually will. So the people that he's talking to here, they, they are not necessarily... Speaking out against Paul, though some very well might have. It very well might be these uh, who started the talk about, uh, started all the, the, the problems with um, saying that he's not a, a true apostle. That we saw in First Thessalonians. It could be those who are starting to talk about different, or they're hearing different views and they're starting to become busybodies about it and put together the theory that Jesus has actually already come or the day of the Lord has come. We don't know specifically, but it's an issue within the church. And so Paul is clear that it needs to stop because there needs to be no reason beyond this. It's not in keeping. It is out of step with the disciple of Jesus. And so it will cause damage sooner or later. And the principle that we're looking at then is that small steps in rebellion in some way or another... And, and again, when at, the, at its root, sin, whether commission or omission, is still a sense of rebellion. You're rebelling against the word of God. You're turning against it to some degree. And those small steps usually lead to more and greater steps 
in the, dire- in the same direction. And Paul wants to stop it before it damages the church. So it's a very important thing for us to look at. It's really important for us to understand and for us as a church to determine that we're not going to follow in a way apart from what the word says. And that we're going to love each other very well. So he tells us and he shows us how to go about it, which essentially is Matthew 18. It's Jesus' instruction. So if you want to look with me at Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, and you will have to turn in your Bible since you can't see it on the screen. It's just one of those days. Jesus says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you and you go and you rebuke him in private, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile or a tax collector to you. So this is essentially what Paul is both uh, illustrating in his own life and he's communicating to the church. So we, we know from what we have in the, the book of the Thessalonians, the two letters of the Thessalonians, that initial instruction was already, instruction was already given. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll be turning back and forth. You might want to hold your place between 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 3. But if you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, look, look at how he says this. He had said in 10 that uh, we encourage you brothers and sisters to do this even more and more, to love one another, right? And in verse 11, to seek to live, to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we, what? Commanded you. So it's a past tense. He's already given the instruction. So when he was with them, establishing the church in person, he gave this instruction. So he's, he's made it clear. This is how you are to live. You're to love each other in this way and do this more and more. Work with your own hands. Get about doing what you're called to do. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the first part of 10... He says, in fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. So it's been made clear. No one can say, we didn't tell you. No one can say, no one pointed this out. Because Paul is saying from the beginning, when I was with you, this is part of the instruction that I gave you and the way that you are to live. So the first instruction has been given. And then he also set an example. In chapter 3, verse 7, he said, For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. So when Paul went, he not only said, this is the way that you should uh, work, this is the way you should conduct yourself as a disciple of Jesus, he actually did it. And that wasn't to say that he uh, he could not have received pay from that, but in that situation, he looked at it and he said, these people need an example. As I look around at the city and I look at the pressure and I look at the way that that things are going, they need to see what this looks like. And so he lived that. He patterned his life in front of them to back up the very teaching that he was giving them. So they're kind of without excuse on what that looks like. And then he he clearly continued um, as he he encouraged the correction in, in uh, in his first letter. So as he gave the instruction he received word that this is still going on. So when he wrote the first letter to them, he gave them the correction. It was a gentle warning in, verse, uh, in 
1 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, where he said, you're doing this. Do this more and more. Sometimes this is the way encouragement goes. He said, look, I want you to love each other. I want you to care for each other. I want you to do the things that you know to do, which you are doing, but do it more and more. Keep doing it. Do it better even. Do it more intensely. And then he adds on that part about working with your own hands, leading a quiet life. So it served both to encourage those who are doing it, but also, hey, let's step it up for those of you who might not be. He gives this very gentle encouragement, a general encouragement. But then it obviously continued. And so in his second letter, he gives a direct command in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, he says, We hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busybodies. He calls them out for what it is. Now we commanded and exhort you, we command and exhort you, exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow in weary uh, in doing good. So now he gives a very strict one, and then he gives the instruction to the church hey, if this continues, you got to do more than that. So we kind of see as you follow through that, he has already started that process of the Matthew 18 dealing with it to the point where he will get to the final instance of having nothing to do with these individuals until they change their way. And when we start talking about that, that's what we call church discipline to one degree or another. And we'll look at that a little bit in a few minutes about the distinctions of different types of, of discipline. But this is where we're getting into a part of being a church that is not easy and it's not fun and nobody wants to do it. And that's why there really a lot of churches don't do it anymore because it just seems too hard. And we're more concerned with just having a semblance of peace and unity by not dealing with things instead of doing the hard work of creating real peace and real unity because we understand that peace is not just the absence of conflict. But it's the presence of working through real issues in real ways because real issues are always present. Right? We can pretend it doesn't happen. We can look the other way. But all we're doing is we're playing our hand, we're playing right into the hand of the enemy. And so we have to deal with issues as they come up in order to, be, uh, to remain the church. But it's hard. But failure to address sins of commission or omission, it has negative effects on the church. And we, we see three ways in these letters as to how uh, it's had a negative effect. Because first of all, you, you see this discounting of the authority of the, of, of the gospel. A discounting of it. You, you have people who are saying, this is not the way we need to go, or this is not happening, instead of what Paul has taught. Where he has said, Brothers and sisters, I've already told you about the coming of Jesus. I've already told you about this. And now you have some people who are saying, no, that's not right at all. Again, that's one step towards another step that would completely discount and it would lead to chaos. We see a a bad example in the community that's implied will happen if they don't stick to the authoritative word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. He said uh, to seek in 11, seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Which means that the converse of that is true. If you don't do this, if you don't 
uh, lead a quiet life, if you don't live properly before others, you will not have you will not be behaving properly, and it will have an effect on your witness and on your testimony, which will, of course, all of this lead to tension and potentially division in the church, which we've seen in this letter as well. There is a sense of confusion over what is true, over what Christ is going to do, what He is doing. Are we a part of the church? Are we not a part of the church? Am I saved? Am I not saved? I don't really know what's going on because I'm hearing all these deviant teachings. All these little changes in what is being said instead of the unity of the Word of God that comes, in their case, through the Apostle Paul, in our case, through the written Word of God. It is why it is imperative that we stand unashamedly and without moving on the Word of God. It's all we have. It's all we have. That is our authority as the Spirit of God uses it to apply it to our lives. So, how do we love each other uh, when we're walking out of step? How can we lovingly approach our brothers and sisters who might be deviating in some way? And the first thing that we have to do is we have to live an example like Paul. We have to live an example. We have to determine in our own lives that we're going to follow obediently to Christ so that we have that That authority, the moral authority, the spiritual authority in order to speak into each other's lives. But it also, that's the way we get to be a healthy church. When every individual member of the church determines that they are going to live their lives responsibly in obedience to Christ because He has saved us, because He loves us, because that love relationship is what strengthens our lives, we want to do that because I love Him, because He saved me, because I owe everything to Him. I don't know if you if you've watched if you've watched if you've watched the series Chosen. I got that. If you've watched the series Chosen, I, I love that. Jacob really turned us on to that, and and we started watching that. And the one thing that I noticed throughout is the disciples. If Jesus said it, man, they were just stuck to every word. Now they may they may kind of wonder what the heck is that. But if he says go, they do it. If he says do this, they do that. There is this, this understanding that as, that as Peter said at his great confession, Jesus said in John 6, hey, are you disciples going to turn away too because I've given you a hard teaching? And he said, where would we go? Yours are the words of life. There's nowhere else for us to turn. And so we have that understanding as the disciples then, as the disciples are now, I've got nowhere else to go but Jesus. And we have every force around us that is trying its best to turn our eyes from Jesus, to turn away from Jesus, to listen to this, to watch that, to read that that will pull us away from Jesus. And as disciples of Jesus, if we have that same love relationship that His first apostles had, then we don't want to deviate. And in that case, I welcome you to come around me and help me. I want you to help me because I can't do this by myself. I can't live this on my own. So we live a life of obedience out of our love for Jesus uh, and the fact that He is our Lord and Savior. And so we all seek to lead a quiet life and work productively in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you 
don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take a splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. I think the most understood part of that text is you should not judge. You shouldn't judge because you don't have any room to. How in the world are you going to help somebody else when you got this beam in your own eye? You've got all this hypocrisy in your own life. Truth is, I do. So do you. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which we fall. There are so many ways that we, we aren't living consistently, which is why we need each other. But that text never says, don't help your brother out. It just says, look at yourself first. Take the, take the beam out. Look at your, Do the analysis of your own life to see, Lord, what ways am I walking in disobedience from you? What ways are I, am I tripping up? What blind spots do I have? And one of the encouragements I would give you is to get people that you're close to, that you trust, to say, hey, would you help me find my blind spots? Would you help me find the ways in which I am walking inconsistently? If we're really, really serious about discipleship, we're going to get to the point where we don't try to hide the beam. We actually ask people to help us expose it so that we can take the beam out of our own eye. And then he says, yeah, help each other. Help get the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, how do we do that? We lovingly and we humbly exhort them to correct their ways. That's verse 15. He said, warn him as a brother. Warn them. Again, that's uncomfortable. That's difficult. But if we have the kind of family relationship among us where we give each other that kind of permission, where we have the kind of relationship where we know that we want the best for one another, that we love each other, then I'm not going to be coming at you as somebody who's ready to put you down Right? And you're, not gonna, you're, no, you're gonna know that. You're gonna know that when I approach you or when somebody approaches you in this family of faith, they're not coming to put you down. And the enemy wants, you to, wants that to be the starting point. Oh, really? You're, you're, you're telling me that? Well, should I tell you all the things that I recognize in your life? And then boom, 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 what do we have? We have division. But if I determine that I trust you enough that I know that you're not going to come to me for my destruction, but to lift me up, then I'm going to welcome that. Then I know that you're going to lovingly come to me. You're going to care for me. And when I come to you, I'm not coming to beat you down. That, that doesn't help. I have no reason to come and beat you down. I have no motive to do that. So the only thing I'm coming to do is to help you up and to warn you so that you don't go down that path. And we have to do it lovingly and with compassion. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. So you who are spiritual would be kind of that way of saying, you who understand the nature of the enemy, you who have done the hard work of self-analysis and trying to, to get the beam out of your eye, those of you who see it for what it is, then restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens in this way. You will fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. 
It's what Timothy said, to, it's what Paul said to Timothy that, that leaders were supposed to be. And so that, as go the leaders, so go the, the, the people. And he said in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, he said, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must, must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Why? Because perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Man, we, we ought to be on a rescue mission for each other. And sometimes that involves action, but it always involves keeping the radar up. It always involves loving each other enough to be aware of where we are and being prepared with gentleness to approach and doing the hard work of loving them. Paul also says, take note of them. Back in 2 Thessalonians 3. Um, if anyone, this is 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. And then the third thing there, he says, don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. So we're not really told how that taking note is. Some translations will put those together. But it's not necessarily the same thing. There's this idea of taking notice. And really, that's what I just described. It's, it's being aware. It's making sure that we're not letting someone slip away and slide through the cracks, right? Because once we start to take a step away from the truth, and we know it, and we know that we might get called out on that, you know what our tendency is to do? I'm just going to slip out the back door. And before long, we have people who have left. And they left just because they started to drift a little bit. But before we know it, and they're walking in an entirely different direction. Because we didn't take note of it. We weren't aware of it. We weren't keeping tabs on each other in love. Again, not as gotcha, but as, hey, I gotcha. And so we need to take note of each other. We need to know. We need to have the, that kind of fellowship, that kind of relationship where, where we're, man, we're regularly stepping in each other's lives. It's like, I don't mean to step on your toe. No, I mean to step on your toe. And you step on my toe. Because the enemy is so much greater than we are. But we understand that he who is greater in us is greater than he that is in the world. So that means that we have that glorious uh, opportunity to, to remind each other of how wonderful and glorious He is, of how powerful He is, of how glorious it is to walk in obedience with Him, to follow after Him because where He goes is where we want to be. So we're going to take note of that. But then we understand that there comes a time where we're People aren't listening. They're not doing that. That's what Paul is dealing with. And so he says then, finally, don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet, verse 15, don't consider him as an enemy, but as a brother. So this is not the same thing as what we would call excommunication. Right? There's a difference there, and I want to quickly point out the difference so that we can see how we deal with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul dealt with really what is more along the lines of the sins of commission that become moral failures that, that are 
outside the realm of, of something that a follower of Jesus would do or would be, right? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I didn't mean immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. So there was obviously a misunderstanding. I'm not saying don't associate with people, sinners out on the outside. You, you have to. That's the way we take the gospel. We're not scared of that. We, we're not afraid to hear bad words. We go to them with the gospel. So says, I'm not saying that. You may have misunderstood. But actually, in verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. So he doesn't specifically say to someone who is a brother and sister, but someone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. And then he clarifies even more. Verse 12, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. And then he very clearly says, remove the evil person from among you. This is more along the lines of getting out the, the leaven so that it doesn't spread to the whole thing. This is more like the project, protection of the church. Yes, we should try to love them to Jesus. But absolutely, he says, get the person who claims to be a brother and sister, but clearly is not, get them out. Because John tells us we can't keep walking in sin like that, in habitual sin and be a follower of Jesus. So he's saying, look, don't let that stay in the church. But here it's different. It's a different tone. It's a different approach. And he makes really, really clear. These are still brothers. Treat them like a brother or sister. Love them. And, and the idea of putting them out or disassociating with them was a heavy, heavy load. But it probably had a pretty quick effect. Because in, in that culture, in that day, the, the social connections were strong. That was where you had your protection. That's where you had your relationships. It was a, there was a very culturally strong uh, society or familial society. And so by these people following Jesus, many of their families had put them out. So now this is what they have. This is their social connection. This is their identity is as the church. And so if he says, don't associate with them, dude, they're on their own. It's not like us where we say, hey, we're not going to associate with you anymore. And you go, well, i got a thousand other people I can go to or I can go to any other church and they don't really care, so I'll go there. It's a different kind of thing. It was a pretty heavy, heavy response. And number one, we need to see that for what it is. Paul is saying this is that serious. This is that serious. That we need to make sure that we do what it takes to get their attention so that they'll turn back and turn back quickly. But secondly, it means that we have to do whatever it takes. And so, so I say this, it may look differently in our day. But we follow what Jesus said. We do that ourselves. It, it may be that I do that on a personal level where, I, where if I have a friend and you're just, you know, that friend is just not following Jesus. I'm going to say, look, I'm telling you, you are disobeying. You're, you're, you're not following how a believer lives and walks. Therefore, I'm going to encourage you, man, turn from that. And you've got to deal with that because it is going to overwhelm you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to kill you. And they're just like, look, I got this, all right? Just back off. There may come a time where I have to say, okay, you can continue down this path, but I won't be with you. I won't go down this path with you because it leads to destruction and you're not listening to the truth. And so I'm going to have to back off. Sometimes 
When that relationship is important, it can be a wake-up call. It's the same within the church. Sometimes there are times we have to say, look, we cannot justify this. And if you refuse to listen, then we're going to have to disclude you. We're going to have to, to not lose all connection. He doesn't say that. He says treat him like a brother. But disassociate to some degree, and that's where the church has to come and do that. The bottom line is this is serious. And the bottom line, the bottom, bottom line, is that what we ought to be doing is being proactive so that we don't get to that point. All the things we've talked about do that. Promote and committing a lifestyle of following and living and growing in the Word together. Getting in the Word together. Encouraging each other to do that. Making sure that we understand how we are to live as believers and followers of Jesus so that we can experience peace and joy. Let's promote that. Let's keep pushing that. Let's make sure that we're involving everyone in getting into the Word together, living it out, talking about it. Gospel conversations not out there to lost people, but gospel conversations to each other because we need the gospel every single day. So there's that, but it's also building these strong relationships of accountability. And that comes through having dinner together going out and playing some game together, go do whatever. I love our young adults. They do that pretty well. They just get out and go do stuff together because that is the relationship building that is going to matter when things get hard. That is where when things come at you trying to deviate your course, you've got those relationships already in place. You've got people already saying before maybe you even know it, they're coming up and going, hey, I noticed something a little different. And they're willing to speak it. And then you may go, wow, I didn't even know that. I didn't even see that. I didn't recognize that. And so it can head it off at the pass, developing those kind of relationships. And then just generally committing to life together, to share in the joys, to share in the burdens, to care about each other in the good times and in the bad times. And I think this will go a very, very long way in us becoming an extremely healthy, Christ-honoring, peace Uh, just demonstrating peace and joy in our lives, both to each other and to the world all around us. I want to encourage us to commit personally to this, to commit personally to being that person so that together we'll make a difference and impact in our church and in the world. Let's pray. Father, as most of us know here, that not just life in the world, but even life in the church can be tough. There can be times where we are struggling. There can be times where we are not connecting right. There's just all sorts of things that can happen, Father. I pray, Lord Jesus, you will help us to bind together uh, in such a way that not only will we remain uh, steadfast in our following after you, Lord, but it will be so attractive to those around us who need Jesus that they will start to to ask questions and wonder and want to be a part um, for your glory. So I pray, Lord, you'll just help us to be the church that you've called us to be. Bind us together. Make us, make us what we need to be. And give us the, the compassionate courage to speak the truth into each other's lives for the glory of Christ and also for the good of the fellow believer, the fellow brother and sister. And we'll do this all to your glory. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close with a final song together as our worship leaders come aboard. And um, reflect on these things. Think about this. How can you commit today to being more and more engaged in the community, more and more instrumental in loving and caring 
for your brothers and sisters. Let's worship. To my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing. Hold me, hold me for my King. Always hold me for my King.
Church family, thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, I have just a few announcements for you before we go. Um, I just wanted to share a couple things with you that we have going on in our church life, and I'll speak specifically to some of the stuff we have going on with the students. Um, first of all, um, with our young adults, this coming Wednesday, we will be serving lunch at the Baptist Collegiate Ministry on UTC's campus. Um, if you ever have any questions about that ministry, Jeffrey works there as their campus missionary, um, and he does a great job doing that. Uh, but we have an opportunity to go and feed some college students, which is always helpful as someone who has been in college. You guys can all attest to what I'm describing. And so um, there is a sign up. It'll be in uh, the, the thing that we send out every Sunday. Um, it's also if, for the guys, if you go in the bathroom on the urinal, there's a QR code. Girls, you don't have a urinal, so I don't know where yours is, but it's somewhere in there. Um, and then, uh, so, so you can sign up to be present for that. You can sign up to bring food. If you're going to bring food, you can bring it on Tuesday night when you come for prayer. Um, and you can kind of uh, do all things there at once. Another thing that I want to bring to your attention, church, is on November 15th, on, that's a Wednesday, that Wednesday night, in place of our regular student activities, we are going to have our first family discipleship forum. And uh, this event is for our students, it is for our kids, and it is for our families, more specifically. It's for our leaders of households, and it is for our entire church. And so the topic and the, the concept that this is, is we want to, as a church, invest in you. We want to invest in your family. We want to invest in the ways that you disciple and raise up your kids. Um, as a church, we see you twice a week, maybe three times. And um, outside of that, you're, it, it is the parents' primary responsibility to disciple our kids and invest in them, to bring them to Jesus. And there are a lot of challenges in today's world. There are a lot of difficult uh, things to work around and work through as parents. And I cannot say that I have been there, but I can say that I can see it. And so um, myself and some of our other church leadership that night, we're going to look at social media and the internet and how to navigate that with your kids, um, how to lead them um, through what is probably one of the most difficult parts of our world today. Um, the last thing that I want to share with you is just some encouragement. This isn't quite an announcement, but it has certainly been on my heart this morning. Um, I am incredibly gifted uh, to be present here with you all to work with our students, but I'm also occasionally gifted to be able to just walk around our church in that discipleship small group hour. And um, so I, I, you know, I peek around the corner and I'm watching Stephen teach, and then I go and walk through the kids' hallway, and, and I just get to watch Jeff. Uh, Levitt as he uh, leads those kids in worship and see all of the joy on their faces. And then I go upstairs and I hear my, my leaders sharing their testimonies with my students. Um, and and, and I, I watch as bio works nonstop to make sure that this building stays uh, uh, alive, right? And, and as Ian and uh, David and Kevin, as they work, as Michael and Kevin, oh my word, we are so thankful for you this morning and all of the work that you have put in to our tech. Church, what I want to encourage you in is... We see things pretty linear sometimes. I only have two eyeballs. And, and for you, you see where you are. But I want to encourage you that you are never alone. Never once. You have a God who is always present with you. But you also have a God who has granted you a church family who loves you dearly. 
Regardless of where you are in your life, regardless of where you are in this building, what you see is not the only thing that is taking place amongst our church body. And we are all longing to be closer to Jesus and we are all longing to be closer to you. I'm encouraged by that this morning. And so what I wanna ask you to do um, as we go off of what David has, has preached this morning, as we look to be there for one another, I want you to look around the room, and I just want you to take your arm around somebody. That could be your wife, that could be your kid, that could be your friend. If you don't, if you just, just, just tell somebody you love them. This is your church family. This is, this is the family that God has given you. These are your people, and they are a gift So I want you to love them. I want you to hold them. I want you to go and I want you to be there for them. I want you to to step on their toes. But for this moment, I want you to hold them as we pray together. And I want you to pray for them as we leave. And I want you to love them as you live your life and be loved by all those around you. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. And for the ways that we get to see you in the eyes of the beautiful people you've placed around us today. I thank you for the ways that we come to understand you further as we study your word, but never alone. I thank you for the gift of life. And I thank you for your presence in this space today. I thank you for our community I thank you for our fun. I thank you for our love. And God, as difficult as this may be for me to say in this moment, I thank thank you for our hardship. I thank you for our loss. Because you grow us and you lead us. And I thank you for the arms that are around us today. Because regardless of what you have for us, we are never alone. Lord, help us all to walk closer to you this week as we leave this building today to pursue you in every step that we take from there. Jesus, you are our savior. You are our good shepherd. You are the only way to the God who loves You are our life. You are our heart. You are our role model. Let us live for you today. Father, we love you, and we need you, and we're thankful for you, and we praise you, and we follow you, and we do all things, and we lift all praise, and we say this prayer this morning, In the mighty name of the Son of God, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you so much for being here. Look forward to seeing you soon.